Peter Thiel tweeted, take your money out. In one afternoon, $80 billion just got withdrawn. And that's the power of digital banking. But that's only step one. The whole power of digital banking goes far deeper than that. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Emmanuel Daniel, who's going to talk about the state of the economy and the banking industry as a whole. But before we get into that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. It's been a pretty wide open last 10 days. We were in Tulum for nine days for Leslie's birthday. That trip kind of came about because her brother wanted to go down there and wanted her to come on that trip with him. And then in the end, his girlfriend got COVID and couldn't come. So there was a lot of crazy logistics that we had to work through where, because we were going from one Airbnb to this other one, and then we started looking into it. And apparently the one he booked had some rough reviews around people getting stuff stolen. So we moved to a different one, but it's got three bedrooms, like two floors, and then they can't come. So I mean, Leslie got this huge place by herself, which was kind of weird, but it was an awesome trip. Definitely learned a ton about the area. It was our first time down there. And I won't bore you with the whole story, but there was uh, one situation where we went to a restaurant for like five hours because of uh, <laughs> this like credit that we had. It was meant to be for four people. And since me and Leslie don't drink, we just had so much money we had to spend on food that was prepaid. Another cool thing about that trip is got to check out the Capital One Lounge in Dallas, which is the nicest airport lounge I've ever been in. It was awesome. They're coming after the Centurion Lounges. So if you're, if you're into traveling, check that out. And then last but not least, I actually got to finally do my surprise for Leslie's birthday yesterday, and that was to go swim with river otters. So there's a place outside of Waco, Texas, where you can actually have like a private experience where you're getting to feed and handle and swim with uh, otters, which she loves. So that was pretty wild. How about you, Cody? (laughs) I don't know if I can top that, Justin. Man. For me, I went on a tiki boat that our friends own on Friday, and the weather was beautiful. If people are longtime listeners, you probably heard back in April we went on, but it was freezing cold in Boston out in Seaport. It was like 40 degrees. This time, weather was awesome, and we had a good time on there. Next day, we had a grad party. One of my friends just graduated with a degree in ocean engineering. So he's like working on seismic stuff on the ground, all the stuff I don't know about. And then his his brother, who's also my good friend, just graduated electrician school. So he just got his journeyman license. So and then on Sunday, we were supposed to do a half marathon, but it was really rainy. There was a thunderstorm. And unfortunately, they changed the half to a 10K. So I just like busted my butt to get the fastest 10k I possibly could. I was really upset that I couldn't do the half marathon that I was training for, but you know, 6 miles is better than nothing and I'm going to be signing up for another half soon since I'm in running shape. But Justin, that's enough about us. Let's talk about our guest for today, Emmanuel Daniel. This episode was definitely a lot different than the typical guests that we have on here. Emmanuel is like a walking encyclopedia when it comes to macro events and the economy and the banking system and blockchain and crypto like I think if we just let him run for five hours, Justin, he could have just kept talking and talking and talking about current events and what's going on. It was honestly insane to just see this guy going nonstop, just picking up our questions in stride. We didn't really dig into the personal finance stuff too much, which was a reason why we wanted this episode. Justin and I feel like we do a pretty good job covering the personal finance side of things, like you know how to make more money and save more money and invest. But Emmanuel really brings this thing full circle by talking about what's going on in the macro economy and what you need to pay attention to. 
And the other thing I thought was really interesting is just diving into the evolution or maybe even lack thereof of banking, but maybe where banking is going to have to go to keep up as we introduce things like crypto and how it can stay relevant. Because I mean, when you think about it, banking is one of the oldest industries, period. But yet, also, when you think about it, it doesn't feel that different than maybe when it first started. And so Manuel starts to talk about some things that people who are, that are over these banks need to start considering so that they don't become irrelevant. Like we mentioned, there's a ton that Emmanuel goes over and that he talks about. If you want to learn more about what he's got to offer or check out his book, you can find all that information over at thefyshow.com slash Emmanuel. That's thefyshow.com slash E-M-M-A-N-U-E-L. Take it away, Emmanuel. I trained to be a lawyer and growing up, I thought that that's the only thing I wanted to be. And the funny thing was that on the day I graduated, the weight was lifted off the back of my head and that's the one thing I didn't want to be. So, you know, my parents were civil servants. They, my father was a railway man. My mother was a clerk in the university, you know, and stuff like that. And, and they were good, pretty decent Christian middle class and government servant type of people. So there was nothing in my upbringing that suggested that I was going to be entrepreneurial. Uh, and so after I qualified as a lawyer, I spent 10 years not being a lawyer. I decided to go out and look for things to do. So I was in consulting a lot. And towards the end of those 10 years, in the, and in those days, if you're from any one country, you tend to work in that country, especially if you come from my part of the world, Southeast Asia, where you know I finished college in Singapore. And then you know Singapore is a very small little island surrounded by various countries. Today, if you graduate from university, you'd be out of your country and doing projects cross-border within three weeks of graduation. You know, and in my time, for five years, I sat in the same office in the consulting company and serving you know, clients, large corporates and stuff like that. So I wanted to go out and do things. And then I got a couple of other jobs that, that made me travel a lot more, clients in Indonesia. And these were during a period when corporates in emerging markets were raising capital. And it was exciting to see how the capital market itself was being formed in many of the countries that I served. And then I said, you know what? I'm not the kind that can climb the corporate ladder. So what I did was I invented a business for myself. And the simple story was that the Asian bankers started as a publication, which gave me an excuse to go out there, meet the chairman of banks of any of the large countries around me. They're excited to tell their story. And from there, I recreated the consulting business, the research data business. And so we are a full-fledged financial services industry research consulting company. And then we have several you know, different things. And why banking and finance? I think in the time that I went out to market, the nice thing would have been to do government or big business, but big business didn't really exist at that time in a lot of Asia, and government was too dangerous. You go to jail for you know, saying things that governments don't like. So I call banking the cathedral industry. If you land in any country, this is the industry that sits in the center of the city. It covers everybody's life from cradle to grave. And it gives you a front seat view of the front seat view of the country's economy. 1986 was when I graduated. So it was a 10-year journey from there to studying the Asian banker. And by 2000, I had found my way into China. 
And the chairman of the largest bank, ICBC, came to Singapore. By 2000, the Asian banker was quite well known already in, in about three or four years. And the chairman of the largest bank came to Singapore, insisted on having lunch with me, and I had no clue why he did that. And then I was later to find out that was part of the preparation that these Chinese banks were going through to prepare for their own gigantic IPOs, which in the case of ICBC, the world's largest banking IPO at $20 billion four years later. And ever since, I've had a front seat view of this huge country's development to what it is today. And the other thing is this, that because I was called the Asian banker, any American personalities, and I can name drop for you, if you I mean, to tell you who they are, but the point is that chairmen of bank, when they would come to Asia, would look me up and I would have their personal attention for three weeks as they travel around the region and we use them to have conversations with the banks in Asia and so on. And so in a very strange way, I also became, you know, associated, acquainted with some of the very, very interesting people. Like my book, for example, the foreword is written by Barney Frank, who wrote the Dodd-Frank Act. So in that way, a whole range of people around the world. And from the backwaters of Southeast Asia to become a global player from there on. It's been an amazing journey that way. (laughs) Yeah, that does sound like a, a heck of a journey. Let's kind of take one step at a time. It's 1996. You've come out with this publication. For those listening, like to me, especially thinking in those shoes, like, okay, it's 1996. Like you're coming out with a publication. Is this like a physical book that's coming out periodically? Is it like a newsletter? And then how does that turn into an actual business from that standpoint? Uh, Well, it was at that time a magazine and it was mostly physical. The first few weeks, you got to print it all yourself. And, you know, I started with two employees. Today, I have 70 full-time employees and then 20 part-timers and freelancers that I use different parts of the world. You started off that way. And then the the interesting thing is when you call your magazine The Asian Banker, within the second day, we had an intern, a, a very young girl sitting in the office and calling the banks to take on a subscription and all that. One banker said, oh, yes, yes, uh, the Asian banker. Because it sounded so pompous, they, they thought they'd heard it before. But we were like the third or fourth day in business. So choosing a right name also matters. And then, of course, you know, integrity is very important, putting together data that the industry finds useful. So for the first time ever, bankers in Asia were able to see their numbers next to each other. So, for example, ATM penetration. We would publish that and say ATM per million population, this is what the ratios look like in all of the different countries. At that time, the U.S. is something like 250 ATMs per million population. And then some countries in Asia would have like 60 ATMs per million population. And then when you look at the cities, they are like 250 ATMs. And when you fly into the city, you would actually see that all the ATMs are in the city. So we were able to tell stories of how the banking industry was configured in all the different countries. And then by comparing what needs to be done, and of course, the U.S. always presented itself as a benchmark, meaning that if you're a mature banking system, this is what you look like. And that was in those days. Today, it's totally different because there are banks, Asian countries, which are incredibly superior and they've gone further down the road and all that. So basically, let the numbers tell the story. So I have a lot of questions. There's a lot of things we can dive into. But first, I just want to put a definition out there. It's actually the name of your book. It's The Great Transition, 
And one of the reasons Justin and I were so excited to have you on is I think we do a really good job. I'm going to pat ourselves on the back with the micro. We talk about you know how to earn more, how to save more, how to invest, but we don't typically cover macro stuff. Not even, I mean, you're global, you're global macro. We don't even cover macro US stuff that much. So laying the land here, I definitely want to cover a bunch of macro stuff, US, global, and how people can use that to then kind of convert that into micro habits or just decisions, actions they can take in the micro. Going back to my first question, can you just define what the great transition is? What do you mean by that? So after 20 something years in covering banking and then covering it from the perspective of the practitioner, deciding for myself that I wanted to write a definitive book that talks about where this industry is going, I had to sort of step outside the traditional industry that the practitioners were comfortable with and start saying to myself, how is this industry going to be deconstructed and how is it going to break through into the new technologies that are coming on stream? You know, you had the creation of Bitcoin, for example, in 2008. Now, how does that affect banking as we know it? So it was a personal journey also in, in, in trying to stand outside the industry, because if you're part of the industry, you'll be too comfortable with what everybody else is doing. And bankers are very good at talking about digital as if it is the industrialization of finance instead of the digitization of finance. It's a big difference. Industrialization of finance means banking with a view of reducing your costs, increasing your service levels, and doing it in as automated as possible, but doing the same thing again and again into the digital world. So nothing changes as a result. But decentralized finance and so on brings the promise of new models by which the financial services industry should function. And at the core of that promise is the disintegration of the intermediation business. In other words, you and I, Cody, if we wanted to send money to each other, increasingly we do not need an intermediary. So the traditional banking industry has to figure out a new role for themselves as we make this transition. And I call it the great transition because if finance can be highly personalized, society will become highly personalized. So, and you're right, it's a big book. It's a huge themes, not just about the banking industry, but of how we will live our ordinary lives in the future. And also how assets will be perceived, values and so on. So I've thrown in a lot of stuff into the book, but I've always gone back to first principles to try and figure out what is this journey that the industry is making from its traditional physical moorings to digital. Now, the nice thing about banking is there are lots of features about banking, the DNA of banking, uh, which holds it together that we don't appreciate. For example, the deposit business, right? The deposit business in the old days, in the traditional days, was a beautiful business, which if a bank gets it right, in other words, you build a bank over a long period of time, you build trust with your customer base, you have good branch networks, and your branch networks are close to your customers, you are rewarded with the lowest cost of funding to run your business. And you go to any country in the world, the largest, oldest banks have the lowest cost of funding. They also tend to be the most profitable banks in those countries. And the reason they are profitable, and you know, deposit on the bank's balance sheet is actually a liability. The bank owes the customer the, the money, right? And the asset on the bank's balance sheet is the loan. So you think that it's the asset that generates revenue, but in banking, it's actually the liabilities that generates the revenue. If you keep your costs as low as possible, 
the margin is what you make your money from. The lending is the easy part, you know, like you send it out there. But if your cost of funds is too low, you will blow out the lending business. So you really need to get the deposit side right. When we do an evaluation of a banking bank's business, we look at its ability to garner cheap deposits. Now, then we take it into the digital realm. And how does that change today that you and I and the next generation can actually put their deposit into any digital wallet if they wanted to? And by that, the banking industry is losing its hold on customers to be able to garner cheap deposits. And so there, there are lots of neo banks, there are, there's PayPal, the payment platforms, all of it, which are deposit-taking institutions. So how's the, that relationship that used to define banking, how's that changing into the new realm? So that's what I mean by the great transition, which is there's a great transition taking place at a social level, but also within the industry. So the, the thing is that where it's taking us requires us to appreciate where we are coming from and then understand how the rules are changing. So in the old days, the deposit business, the name of the game in the deposit business, and your older listeners would appreciate this, was in the interest that the bank gave for your deposit. And compounded interest was a powerful savings tool. Today, banks don't give good interest rates, right? I mean, the interest that you get on your deposit is so pathetic <laughs> that just going to the ATM to withdraw money makes you lose money on the taxi fare. You know, it's really, you can't become rich with bank deposits. In fact, you need to invest in structured products and all kinds of investment products in order to generate wealth. And what the industry has not come to terms with is that the deposit business has moved from savings to utilization. The utility of the deposit is what defines the industry. And utility is not just people going out to the ATM and withdrawing money so that they can go out and have a meal. But when deposits are digital, you're able to um, you know, function in a whole range of digital situations, everything from paying your friend instantly, you're going to have uh, Fed now coming on stream in the next few weeks, to being able to pay on tokens in a game, to being able to buy an NFT in the metaverse. So for all those reasons, it's very important that the financial institution today is digital and in order to serve the utility of the deposits business in the virtual world or in the digital world. So that's the kind of transitions that I'm talking about. I have no doubt that we'll dig into some more of those type topics, some of the like the cryptocurrency type topics. But you mentioned one thing there, we're talking about like building trust and the deposits. And it made me think about here, it wasn't that long ago, but although it seems like the news cycle has already started covering up, you know, we started having some banks fail with like First Republic Bank. Do you think that was a poorly run bank or was that more of a macro problem that we should all be looking out for and, and a sign of things to come? Actually, I gave you the deposit example for precisely that reason, because that's the story of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank. And by the way, I visited Silicon Valley twice. I know the, the chief executive of Signature Bank. And then, of course, your first republic and so on. And technically, these banks did what all banks do when they have excess deposits, that is to dump them into treasury bonds as a you know, revenue yielding asset. It was a no brainer. Uh, you know, th that's what banks have always done. In fact, in the, going back to the old days, there used to be a lovely commerce bank share, right? And it was run by someone called Vernon Hill. And he was one of the cheapest, best deposit gatherer of any bank in the US. 
he didn't even bother building a lending business. All he did was put all of the deposits into treasury bonds, yielded him all the revenue you wanted. So the banks were not doing anything other than what they always have been doing. And you would imagine that treasury bonds are the safest possible asset class to deploy excess deposits. But what I'm trying to persuade the banking industry and also regulators is that the name of the game has changed in the deposit business. So for the banks that fail, Silicon Valley and, and Signature and so on, especially Silicon Valley, actually Signature was, I think was a regulatory. Now the thing was Signature Bank, everyone now says that, you know what, on a Sunday afternoon, just when Peter Thiel tweeted, take your money out, in one afternoon, $80 billion just got withdrawn. And that's the power of digital banking. But that's only step one. The whole power of digital banking goes far deeper than that. And it's taking us on a journey, okay, a great transition to a whole new world where the deposit business needs to be understood differently. Okay, and this is something that I'm trying to be a voice, tell the industry that you really need to think differently about the deposit business going forward. Now, bringing in the new disciplines that crypto is creating, when a bank takes your deposit and puts it into an account, the whole technology of the bank is so archaic that the mainframe in the bank processes the information that it has your deposit in its account on a batch processing system. In other words, even when the bank is able to give you your money when you want it, it can only consolidate its positions overnight every day. So it's not a 24-7 business. Then you juxtapose what's happening in crypto. Crypto is a 24-7 industry managed by nobody and having all the liquidity in the network and then the, you know, the algorithms to create applications around them. So crypto is actually setting the standards for traditional banks. This is what you need to measure up to in the digital world, and you're not measuring up to it right now. And so if you take Silicon Valley Bank again, for one whole year, they had problems trying to match their assets and liabilities. They were getting incredible amounts of assets, liabilities, that means uh, deposits, and they really couldn't figure out how to deploy that. The problems were accumulating over time. But when you see what's happening in crypto, all these issues are actually managed on the back of an algorithm. I'm saying to bank treasurers, look at what's happening in crypto and in decentralized finance. There are some new disciplines that can backtrack back into traditional banking. I think it's really interesting what you said about like the Peter Thiel tweeting out and all of a sudden like 80 billion in withdrawals. And something that you talk about is the next financial crisis and why it's going to basically be a derivative of like public perception and digital miscommunication. Could you kind of explain a little bit more what you mean by that? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. When I need to explain something like this, I need to explain it in two forms. Okay. One is for the lay person, that means a non-banker and how he sees money. And the other is for the bankers to see how their industry had changed substantially right in front of their own eyes. So the, to the bankers, I will say this that look at how the banking regulatory regime has evolved since after Bretton Woods, right? So the end of Bretton Woods was 1971. Nixon goes on TV and tells the rest, tells the world that, you know what, the US will not hold to the dollar anymore, and uh, dollars to the price of gold anymore, right? But it took 12 years for the first full crisis to be fully mature, which is the savings and loans crisis. And what was the savings and loans crisis? It was actual mortgages set on the books of the mom and pop banks, the savings and loan institutions, and they were finding it difficult to match the two. And what came out of that was Basel I, which is the first regulatory regime created to make sure that banks have enough liquidity in their balance sheet to meet demands and so on. Right? And Basel I's solution was very simple, was 8% capital adequacy ratio. By the time Basel II came on stream, Banks' balance sheets have started changing. They started having securities on their balance sheet. They started having ephemeral de- assets like derivative of a mortgage. By the time you get to 2008, you had derivatives of derivatives, futures, which were traded among the New York banks rather than the Main Street banks. An entire industry had been created where there can be a bank run based on the trade of traders rather than on the actual balance sheet of the banks. And so this is where I'm, going, I'm taking it. And today we are in a position where there can be a bank run on the back of a tweet. And by the time you reach to where we are today, the cost of a bank run and the cost of a banking crisis is increasingly ephemeral. In other words, it's got nothing to do with the balance sheet of the bank or the banking industry. It's got to do with perception and the assets themselves are ephemeral. You know, so we need to start thinking of the industry very differently. So Basel II, for example, started to tell banks that you needed to have three pillars. You, you know, the market pillar, the operations pillar, and the asset liability pillar. Then the Basel III started telling banks that, you know what, we don't know what you actually have on your balance sheet. So you need to do an internal rating to try and qualify the assets and uh, mark-to-market value of your assets. In other words, the regulators are telling banks that you got to help us with this one because we don't know how to value the assets that you have in your book. So can you imagine what Basel IV will look like when it eventually comes to stream? That all of us are being affected by perception and also by the network effect. So we are becoming more networked even as the industry is becoming more digital. Those are factors that changes how the industry operates and where the risks will come from. And with all this information kind of like setting the stage of what's going on in finance, what should listeners be thinking about for their own personal lives? Like what should someone armed with that information, what kind of different decisions would you make, you know, about the future of their money as an individual? So two things. One is your relationship with your institution. I think that many of your ultra high networks already know this, which is they are becoming increasingly self-directed in their investments, in their, in their financial decisions. And there is greater what you call symmetry of information between the user of finance and the provider of finance. And so the providers of finance, especially in wealth, 
they are scrambling over themselves to remain relevant to the customer. It's like Uber, right? You now know where the cab is, how many cabs there are out there, and what is the average price that they are bidding to take you on as a passenger, mm-hmm. right? So you and you have as almost as much information as the cab industry and as the regulators have. So finance is becoming that way that the individual has got greater access to information. Now, to the industry, it also means that the empire can strike back, which is what happened two years ago in the meme stock crisis, the Reddit revolution, GameStop, and and so on, right? Where you can actually have retail customers banding together to push back on shorters from on the hedge fund, on the hedge fund side of the game. And we will see increasingly the ability of ordinary people to respond to financial opportunities or crisis and they are a factor to be taken into account. So the nature of the relationship with financial institutions has changed dramatically. And for certain things like insurance, for example, the banks still think that they can get away with selling investment-linked products, for example. And you know something? Every bank CEO I know personally will never buy an investment-linked product, although the banks sell them. Because that's the stupidest thing to do. The cost of the product is too expensive for the customer. And all it does is it just rewards the distribution network in the banking system. Ordinary people are becoming aware of the inefficiencies of financial intermediation and the alternatives that they have to manage their own assets. The second thing is that the nature of assets are also changing. We live in a world today where the best asset that you can buy if you're building wealth is a property. And property means a mortgage that you sign on that is between seven years and 30 years of paying back. And hopefully in that period of time, you generate wealth. But think of what a mortgage will look like when mortgage registries are digitized, where encumbrances and liens and whatever claims there are on properties are totally digitized and where property can be bought and flipped on the strength of an app on your phone by a millennial or a Gen X or a Gen Z or a Gen A, okay? How do you think they will treat assets like property? And the whole thinking of fixed assets and wealth is going to be changing dramatically. So with all this being said, and I guess higher risk of like a run on the bank from a tweet and things like that. Do you recommend people kind of spread their assets out amongst different financial institutions, whether that's their banks, whether that's their like investment accounts? And if so, how do you then determine like, okay, this is one that I can trust. This is one that I can put like a decent amount of my net worth into. So something I say towards the end of my book, and I actually borrowed this idea from a Rand Corporation analyst. He said that society moves from one phase to another, and there are four phases. It used to be tribal, and then it became institutionalized. And from institutionalized, we created markets. And from markets, we will become networked. And he wrote this paper in 1992 or three or four, something around that time when the fax machine was the only most developed technology around. When I applied his thinking, he wasn't even talking about finance, he was talking about the technology itself. But when I applied it to finance, I said, oh my goodness, yes, we are in the markets phase of human development and we are about to move into the network phase. So when you take something like crypto and you see all the arguments that are taking place in crypto right now, so what I say is this that everything that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett say about crypto today as a markets instrument 
they are right. They're not wrong. It needs to have an underlining utility. You need to assess it on that basis. And if it's a security, then it's a willing buyer, willing seller situation. In other words, you must maximize your profit at the point of transaction, and then it's done. But when we move into the network phase, it generates new rules by which assets are valued and wealth and the source of your wealth is valued. The network itself is a generator of wealth. That is something that a lot of people just can't imagine at the moment. But the simplest example I give is information. Like if I sold you a house or a security, a share, at the point of selling it, I have to maximize my profit and the deal is done. And then, you know, there's a winner or a loser and there's no going back on that. But when you think about information, it's the one asset which if I give to you, I don't lose it. And I need to give it to 100 people. When I give it to 100 people, I become more powerful as a result, right? So think of it that way, that in the network world, assets increase in value when it travels through the network. So then we start thinking, what assets are going to be in that way? We already have the seeds of such assets in gaming, okay? The tokens created in gaming, in NFTs, the way in which people are willing to provide a value. Now, these are early days for these technologies. So some of the developments will suddenly disappear because they didn't make any sense, but it is maturing step by step. A whole new idea of how wealth is created. Now, then the question is, what sort of portfolio should I have? I think that you need to have a combination and then write the transition as it happens. And we will figure it out as we go along. But these are still early days in that way. So we've talked about, you know, one of the really big, I guess, kind of like hype type things is, you know, cryptocurrencies all over the news. And now, you know, AI is kind of everything everybody's talking about, artificial intelligence. When we're looking at banking, how do you think that artificial intelligence is going to really change the way we think of banking and finance today? Walter Riston said in 1969 that money is a form of information. Okay, that's what it is in essence is. And in payments, between you and me, if I can send you a WhatsApp message for free, technically I can send you a payment message for free, right? And the only reason payment still costs a lot of money to transact is because there's regulation and there is you know, security concerns and all of that. So otherwise, payment is just a form of information. The thing about AI in finance, and this is something that I've told in the three chapters to the back, to the end of the book, I said that If the product doesn't change, nothing changes. And this is me speaking to the banking industry, right? And saying to them that, guys, you talk about innovation and disruption and creation of new realities in finance. Just get this into your head. If the product doesn't change, nothing changes. And I tell the story of Kodak, and I've said this a thousand times. I, I first told the story of Kodak in 2017, and I keep using it. Kodak invented the digital camera in 1995 together with a few other players, right? 2001, Sony came up with the Cybershot. 2007, the iPhone was born. And 2010, Kodak went into liquidation, right? And why? Because they didn't make the transition into digital fast enough. They loved their 35mm physical product. So now coming back to this, the point that we, we started this conversation with, which is a deposit business, I, for one, see that the banking industry might actually embrace stable coin as a new form of deposits in the future. 
Okay, I see that the deposit business will transition from savings product to a utility product in the digital space. And the best utility token in the digital space is stablecoin. And imagine a world where every bank issues a stablecoin and the value of the stablecoin is the utilization that it can have in the digital world. So banks compete on the number of application developers, open source coding, that sort of thing that takes place in a stablecoin technology. So this is the kind of thinking that I'm introducing to the banks and saying, start thinking about it this way. The other thing that AI does is there have been some first iteration of disruption in banking, such as peer-to-peer playing uh, players, for example. And the peer-to-peer players, SoFi in, in the US, and then there are others in the UK and other parts of the world, they started with the promise that peer-to-peer means that you don't need intermediation, that you match the borrower and the lender of money, and it doesn't go onto your balance sheet, and you are just a platform, and therefore you disintermediate the banking industry. But what ended up happening is all of the biggest prosper, all of them turned out to become banks eventually. In other words, they lost the game, right? They lost the plot. And why did they lose the plot? Because they used the same language as the banks. They thought that they were facilitating mortgages. They were thought they were facilitating investments. Same products as traditional banking. So once again, if the product doesn't change, nothing changes. Now, what AI is going to do is going to put so much more insights into the relationships that are created between borrower and lender that they will start imagining new products. So a 30-year mortgage will start looking like a three-year lease, a two-year timeshare, another two years of maybe timeshares that you can hive off and ask your friends to carry, uh, something like that, okay? So you can actually deconstruct what a traditional lending product looks like with more data. The idea exists, how it becomes possible remains to be seen, but that's what I see is very likely to happen. So keeping on the topic of change and innovation, something that when I travel, like I'm always very interested. I always ask locals, I'm always asking people like just how things work in their economy. Because I feel like sometimes as Justin and I are in the US, like we're just so used to how the US does things with houses, with everything, with banking, with investing. And I always like learn new things. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. And something that you talk about is how like that was a really interesting point you made. These functional economies are actually going to be shaping the future of global finance. Could you kind of explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so we all look forward to what regulators are thinking and what they're saying in terms of what they're going to allow banks to do and financial players to do and all that. And so when we think about the future of finance, we are looking for guidance from regulators. But when I look at the history of finance, innovation only ever happens in times of extreme disruption. And the most recent extreme disruption was when the U.S. couldn't hold the price of money against the price of gold. And it said, it's a temporary measure. Uh, we will come back to pegging the dollar against the price of gold. And the U.S. never went back. In fact, it started an incredible revolution causing all countries in the world to float their currencies, to make it subject to make currencies subject to supply and demand in the global market, to trade and so on, and no longer against the price of gold. So that was an incredible disruption, and it actually destroyed a few countries in the process. And then it strengthened certain countries who, which figured out how to 
liberalize their currencies and still you know, have enough reserves to be able to uh, ward off speculators and so on. So the story of financial innovation in the U.S. is just one crisis after the next. From the day that the U.S. was formed to raise money to fight the War of Independence and then the Civil War and then the 1900s uh, early crisis, especially in the formative years of large businesses and so on, it was just always one crisis after the next. And then when I think about all these things that I'm talking about, about the future of finance, when will the breakthroughs come? The breakthroughs come when a country just gives up the existing order. The thing I point out is that the most dysfunctional country today in finance, and then we look around, it's at Venezuela, Zimbabwe, El Salvador. These are the places where cryptocurrency seems to be thriving because it provides uh, alternative uh, remittance platform and so on. But the most dysfunctional country that will come out of desperation to introduce stable coins will be the United States. And I have to construct dysfunctional in what way? <clears throat> so right now, we see the regulators competing with each other in the US, the SEC, the CFTC, the OCC, the, the regulators in Chicago, all juxtaposing against each other to figure out how to regulate all the new technologies that are coming on stream. So you think that there is a purpose being created. So something else I say is this, that the way the dollar became a global reserve currency was not through purpose. It wasn't the Treasury Secretary waving a policy paper and saying, okay, this is the policy we are going to implement to make the dollar a global reserve currency. It just became a reserve currency accidentally. The Treasury Secretaries didn't bother about the money that was circulating outside the U.S. In fact, it was important that the dollar that circulated outside the U.S. never comes back to the U.S. because you can't handle a claim when 70% today of the dollar actually circulates outside the U.S. And that's how it became a global trading currency. And then today, the U.S. regulators, especially the New York Department of Finance, weaponizes its ability to monitor every transaction, every dollar transaction that is cleared through American banks. So that how we tell the story of how money became international, international financial order that we have today is a story of dysfunctionality. It's not a story of purpose and design. Okay. So then when we think about what will create the next financial order, we look for points of dysfunctionality that we need to understand. So the point of dysfunctionality of the United States today is that the total debt of the state is now $31 trillion and the GDP of the U.S. is 19, uh, I think now is $21 trillion, right? So the ability of the U.S. to meet its obligations is now a moot point and it's not going back. So I'm saying that debt becomes the economy. You know, these are phrases that I put in so that People understand the points that I'm making. When I say debt becomes the economy, means that balancing the budget is a moot point. It doesn't matter if you can balance the budget. Um, it's, it's more important that investors are interested in buying your debt. As the country creates more debt, internationalizing the debt becomes very important. And the best way to internationalize it is to digitize it. You know, so it's not just the dollar that's going out there or treasury bonds but a digital currency that is readily available in the global market. Um, and so I see that the U.S. will, just from one policy to contain some of the problems it has, it will embrace the new technologies as they become available.
when I follow the, the iterations of the SEC, for example, on crypto, I'm not interested in very specific stuff. I'm just interested in the trend, whether it's heading in the direction that I think it is. So far, my dysfunctionality trend idea hasn't been, hasn't been broken yet. I have no reason to think that the US will be so purposeful that it will be able to design a new financial structure. So there are elements where it operates almost as if it's purposeful. So like Janet Yellen comes up with white working papers on the introduction of central bank digital currencies. And for me, that's entertainment. Like, no, this is not going anywhere. It's a case of a regulator being out of touch with the, the essence of the country, you know, and, and that's, I can say that for a number of countries. I look for what are the driving factors that creates policy or creates new realities and then see every development against these ideas, whether they negate what I'm thinking or not. There's no need to follow, wake up in the morning and, and say Gary Gensler said this, Barr said something else. That's all entertainment. The industry will evolve the, the, the way it always has. One question that I had that's a little less kind of technology focused, and it goes back to some of the things you were talking about earlier, where like used to, you could just deposit money and you could earn, you know, it was a good investment just having it sit there and getting your interest. And now today, like you don't really get hardly anything from a typical savings account. But we have started to see a shift where like, okay, now we're getting back up into a high yield savings account paying five, five and a half percent interest. And I think we all got lulled into this kind of false sense of security around borrowing money at you know, mortgages in the 2% range. But my dad, you know, tells me stories of a mortgage at 15, 16% back in like the 80s. So like where we are today, now that we're kind of at this like five to 7% range, do you see that as like a, a transitory thing? And we're going to go back low? Do these like crazy historic lows? Do you think we're going back up to the teens? Do you think we're kind of going to stay where we are? Like from a macro sense, where do you think we are in this kind of interest ride that we're on? That's a story of inflation and the understanding of uh, central banks on inflation and the role of central banks themselves. I think the media has lulled us into assuming there is a sense of incredible intelligence in central banking that we cannot question. That is so not true anymore. When I meet different governors around the world and I see, I, and I've had years of following how they make decisions and so on, central bankers are not as smart as we imagine them to be, whether it's the US or any one of them. And in fact, they have this incredible herd mentality about everything that they do. In fact, the other day, Roger Ferguson wrote a paper in one of the think tanks in New York, uh, in DC, must be the Foreign Relations Council or some, one of the think tanks in DC. And he, 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 being a vice chairman, and I know him personally, having been a vice chairman of, of the Federal Reserve Banking System, wrote a paper saying, how did the 2% margin for inflation targeting come about? It was a wild idea by the New Zealand uh, regulator. And I know this story. And, and I was very curious that some former central banker wrote that into a paper, that it was just a wild idea. And then every central bank in the world picked on that and they keep their margins to 2%. It's almost like the central banker writing his own job description and his own KPI, right? The current Fed chairman said the same thing. He's like, I want to keep it within 2%. But if you ask any economist, why 2%? There is no logic. It seems like the right thing to do. And in that way, because they define their jobs in such a, you know, that in itself is dysfunctional, they are not ever going to pro solve the problem of inflation. 
Now, whether rates will go up or down depends on a number of other factors, such as capital markets, trade, and the number amount of liquidity in the marketplace. Now, something that ordinary Americans don't realize is that the government actually makes money whichever way. So interest rate goes up, the Fed makes money, and it actually declares its profit and pays its profit back into the treasury you know, from the profits that it generates from higher interest rates. If it is lower interest rates, the treasury makes money and keeps the money for itself because it's paying a lower interest rate on a treasury bond that was issued earlier. It's an interesting system when you understand how it works. It is not necessarily designed to solve some of these problems definitively. And the problems come from uh, a variety of sources, like the price of commodities. When there's a war, prices go up and then inflation gets imported, stuff like that. Now, will the rates go down eventually? My own guess is no. And the reason is that it's not just the US, but any number of large countries, Japan, China, the EU, they're all issuing more debt into the marketplace. And therefore, they need central banks that can print more money to buy that debt. So the liquidity is increasing dramatically. And just this functionality itself creates the appetite for new asset classes that can absorb this inflation. That's how cryptocurrency was born. The early days of cryptocurrency was benign, but as inflation went up, crypto became a token to by which we absorb that inflation. As I said, it's the dysfunctionality that creates the innovations in finance. Well, Emmanuel, you are a man of much knowledge when it comes to banking. My brain has been working this episode, just trying to keep up. And you have just answered all the questions that Justin and I had in stride. But we are nearing the end of our time here. So I want to give listeners a place, a website. I know you have the book. Where do you want people to follow up if they're interested in what you're talking about today? Cody, actually, the easiest is my own blog page, which is emmanueldaniel.com. I have everything in there, meaning the, the book, the table of contents of that. And also some of these ideas that I've been talking to you about, I've been loading them up onto the blog. And then from the blog, uh, you go to where my various businesses are, the Asian banker and, and, and so on. My personal blog is the best place and it's my name, emmanueldaniel.com. Emmanuel, thank you so much for giving us some time and coming on the show and sharing some of this knowledge with us and uh, and also just allowing us to kind of pepper you with questions from all angles. And like Cody said, just answer them in stride. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for, you know, for structuring the conversation in the way you did, because it helped me carry the ideas that I had in a clear manner. Thank you very much for that. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.